Hello and welcome to The Check-In for community connection and conversation over the airwaves. Thanks for checking in with us today. So it's impossible to talk about the events unfolding today with this double crisis we're now in, the virus to begin with, and now the widespread public outcry against racism within law enforcement in the United States. And it's impossible to look at all this without wondering how we got here and whether history and what's gone before can help us understand it. The black experience in this country has pushed our country forward culturally, socially, politically. But these achievements have happened against a backdrop of economic and social policies such as redlining, urban renewal, segregation that have led to inequalities in the health and wealth of black Americans today. What the data, the statistics and the history tells us is that in everything from buying a house, getting a job and tragically even having a baby, it's much harder to do it successfully in this country if you are a black American. And the pandemic has both highlighted this disparity between us as Americans and made it worse. Today, we are going to unpack all of this with two MU history professors whose work sheds light on the historical context and the international context that's shaping the events that we're in today. Devin Fergus is MU's Avar Strickland Distinguished Professor of History and Black Studies. He examines political economy, public policy, and inequality in the United States. Some of his research has looked at how financial deregulation has affected vulnerable populations, and his current work looks at white-collar crime and the racial wealth gap. Uh, So let me just say first to MU's uh, Devin Fergus, thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi, Janet. Um, Thanks for having me, uh, despite the situation, actually, or the situations, I should say, plural. Yes, many situations, and we look forward to just hearing what you have to say about this. And we're also joined today by Jay Sexton. Jay Sexton is the Kinder Institute Chair in Constitutional Democracy and a professor of history at MU. He researches political and economic history of the 19th century, putting the U.S. within its international context. Welcome, Professor Jay Sexton. Thanks for having me. Uh, So, professors... uh, Devin Fergus and Jay Sexton. First, a a general question for you both as historians. Uh, Let me just start generally. What are you seeing as these double events unfold, the pandemic and then these rallies for justice? um, What comes to mind as historians that you've seen before in our history? Let's start with you, Professor Devin Fergus. Sure. Um, Well, what I've seen before is it sort of of actually reminds me of... um, what happens in the early sort of 1990s, um, mm-hmm. frankly, during the Bush administration, L- less so the sort of pandemic than um, than the, the current conflagration, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, the uprisings which happened during Rodney King, the Rodney mm-hmm. King sort of verdict, and then the uprisings in the streets, which sort of um, crystallizes to some level uh, the view that America is sort of coming unravel, uh, mm-hmm. that sort of uh, viewer pers- perspective. Um, and so it, it sort of reminds me of what happens in the early 1990s under under um, George H.W. Bush uh, in some ways. In terms of the, the, the pandemic, um, uh, clearly of, and, and other scholars and journalists and others have sort of talked about uh, the influence of the pandemic of 1918 during the First World War. Uh, and there, uh, there, are, there are a number of parallels. Uh, and I say sort of one thing... Um, that might be sort of different uh, about the pandemic is at some level 
on the way the economy perhaps recovered in the aftermath of the first pandemic as mm. opposed to this current one. Huh. Uh, and then also one might suggest that so the, the, the ways in which the pandemic in 1918 may have had um, less of a disparate racial impact uh, than the mm. pandemic uh, that we're currently going through today. So that might be some of the sort of parallels. Uh, and perhaps Jay might want to talk a bit, a bit about um, the ways in which the competing administrations responded to the pandemic. Of course, yes. in the pandemic of 19, 1918, um, we had, which, not, we had the pandemic of 1918, which also had World War I, yes. frankly, uh, unfolded during that pandemic. Um, and so to, to hear that the, the, at least the current administration try to downplay the pandemic, it, um, it reminds me of that famous line from another famous Missourian, uh, mm-hmm. Mark Twain, that uh, history may not repeat itself, but it tends to rhyme a lot. Uh, and so, and so, and so Wilson, um, as, as your listeners probably well know, again, largely tried to downplay the pandemic, uh, mm-hmm. in part because of trying to encourage uh, the war morale and also mm-hmm. because we need war material during, uh, during the, the, uh, during this sort of war effort. And so there's an effort to, for, by governments, uh, in the U.S. and abroad to sort of downplay the pandemic, which is in part why the pandemic was, was, um, Sort of erroneously, sort of um, had the name of um, the sort of Spanish Spanish flu, uh, mm-hmm. because Spain was the only neutral with the neutral nation at the time, and so both uh, U.S. and its allies, as well as its enemies, tried to sort of throw off the uh, that the the uh, flu on on Spain, uh, and so again, government's trying to downplay pandemics uh, mm-hmm. for for various reasons. So. To hear the, uh, the the current administration, at least in the early parts of the war, excuse the early parts of the, of the pandemic, try to downplay um, the coronavirus, and certainly has resonance um, with what happened in the early part of the 20th century. Interesting. So that was resonance for you that took you back to 1918 pandemic. Uh, Jay Sixton, what is on your mind as you watch things unfold as a historian? Uh, I know you both could write an entire book about that's just that's one question, but I just want to start a little generally and hear like what, what has seemed a little bit like deja vu for you. Well, I mean, I think that the headline here is that moments of crisis are not contained by uh, lines on a map, by national borders. Uh, That's been the case uh, in the United States' history. Just think about our revolution was part of a broader age of revolutions. Um, The Great Depression was, of course, a global uh, phenomenon that affected societies right across the world. And uh, I think we're seeing that uh, again today. Um, There's two ways in which um, the current crises um, are kind of spilling beyond um, our our borders. I'm talking here about the the racial tensions and conflict of the last week, as well as the pandemic, which is obviously an international uh, phenomenon. Um, The first way is that um, the issues at stake have reverberated right across our borders. Um, It's not a surprise that um, a local event has spread to other American cities, but it's spread beyond the United States. We've had solidarity protests in cities across the world, uh, not least those that are densely connected to the United States, like Toronto, London, Berlin, and so on. The second point is, in the bigger picture, um, though the specifics of the, 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 the conflicts in the United States today are are quintessentially American, they're rooted in historical legacies of slavery and racial inequality. Um, though they're specifically American, I think they're part of a, of a broader global 
theme. Mm -hmm. uh, we live in an age of social tension um, uh, taking place to the backdrop of political and economic volatility. Um, it is probably going back into ancient history just a few months ago before the uh, pandemic, before uh, George Floyd. The, the big um, news story was, of course, the protests in Hong Kong. Mm. Um, and though the specifics there were very different from what we're seeing in the United States, the stakes are the same. The mm. big question is what form of political authority is best suited uh, to address the challenges of our present moment of volatility? All right. A lot to uh, to unpack there, and we are going to do that over the program. This is the check-in. We're talking about inequalities, health and wealth, current events, and what we can learn from our history here in America. We're talking with professors and historians, Devin Fergus and Jay Sexton. Um, Devin, you focus on disparities, and that's a huge backdrop to what's happening here. And Jay, you're an expert in America's role in the world and what the world has and the world has been hit with um, a striking image of America's brand of justice this week. Devin, what are the particular aspects of how we in America value black lives and black property, health and wealth that are on your mind as you observe the events unfold right now? Oh, Jenna, an another big question. Go <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so sorry. I'm actually gonna. I'm, that's, that's very funny. I'm actually gonna tie that to something that you and Jay both sort of raised. Um, the, sort of the big questions that have an impact on, on Black America, but also on the broader society. You mentioned about the upcoming um, uh, a, a rally uh, by the NACP. Uh, yes. And in Boone County, and then Jay mentioned the word of crisis. Uh, and as you and your listeners probably well know. Uh, the organ, the name of the journal for the NACP is Crisis. That's the title name of his journal. His name is mm -hmm. Crisis, founded in 1909 by the, by the noted sociologist historian W.B. Du Bois. Mm -hmm. And so, and I bring that up because black America is in a constant state of crisis. I mean, you don't name a journal Crisis mm -hmm. uh, unless you feel like it's something that is, is, is omnipresent sort of present in, in the lives. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the big question becomes, uh, when does the crisis that black America constantly sort of regularly sort of experiences impede upon the mission and vision and interest of the nation, right? And, and, and or your geopolitics. And I think, think this might be possibly one of the sort of moments. And so the idea of, of crisis in the black communities is, is almost a constant. And so the big question mm -hmm. becomes, what is that crisis uh, rises to the level that it, it, it peaks the needs and the interests of the nation, or the the public interest, uh, and so uh, the the uh, Dirk Bell used to, uh, uh, quoted this uh, phrase, a coined this phrase called interest convergence. And so the interest convergence thesis and theory is that whenever the interests of 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 an oppressed population or historically marginalized, historically disadvantaged population, intersects with the interests of the nation's elite, this is when you get major jumps in and social and public policy. So take, for instance, um, uh, the 1950s and, uh, or 1960s, when you see things like the Brown decision or the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act, these major jumps in public policy that really have a particular material impact on, on inequity in America. Uh, if you want to look at closing things like the achievement gap, whether it's the education achievement gap, the income gap, and other gaps, uh, they really sort of date back to things like the, the, the passage of public policies in the 1960s. And why did these policies particularly pass? 
well, it's not because blacks, black, black Americans or sort of marginalized populations uh, were critiquing American racism or discrimination. They'd always been doing that. It's because, in many ways, the interests of, of black Americans began to intersect and converge with the interests of the nation's elite, i.e., uh, America was being sort of pilloried abroad uh, by the Soviet Union over issues of racial discrimination and Jim Crow. Uh, at the time in which uh, the U.S. and Jay talked about the, the protests happening in sort of Southeast Asia, at times when the U.S. was trying to promote uh, democracy abroad in places like Latin America, Africa, and Asia, these non-aligned nations of the world, primarily folks of color. And the mm -hmm. Soviet Union sort of made the argument, why would you embrace American dem democratic-style capitalism, which embraces Jim Crow racial discrimination, and why not embrace uh, colorblind communism? And so to push back against that narrative of the Soviet Union, what you find is that um, policymakers and lawmakers began to promote and advance issues of civil rights in order to push back against that, against against a foreign interest and a foreign agenda. Uh, and so, we, uh, so when does this issue of that cost of Black America matter to the nation? Perhaps when the nation sees that its interest converges with with uh, historically marginalized populations. Uh, and that's often happens um, geopolitically. So even China, for instance, recently have talked about racial discrimination in America. Hmm. Uh, even even go back to to the collapse of of the mortgage market so more than a decade ago, when Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden talked about, for instance, racial discrimination, trying to use America's racialized policies, racialized history against against the nation's sort of interest. And so this is a this is a regular theme and whatever resonates with um policymakers uh nationally, we often see progress in terms of, of economic and social racial policy. All right. Well we're we're really getting into Jay Sexton's territory here. Um Jay your book is an, one of your books that you've written is a nation forged by crisis and and talking about how transfor, transformational change in the U.S. has been molded by international influence, exactly as Stephen Ferguson is describing. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, the protests, the rallies on justice for George Floyd have gone global. We're seeing New Zealand, London, Iran, and even some German footballers taking a knee. Um, what What's going on there? And, and can the rest of the world, will the rest of the world put pressure on America and help transform this, potentially? You know, it's a really interesting question. I mean, one thing that one could conclude from, from just the events of the past a couple of days is that the political divisions that we see within nations um, extend beyond nations. Um, and if you are to go back uh, again to ancient history before George Floyd, before the pandemic, um, the, the big debate in uh, global politics was about the, f the future of international relations. Would the, would the world be comprised of um, closed nation states that closed their borders, that, that, that uh, constructed tariff walls, that shut down immigration border walls, that withdrew from international institutions? This was, of course, the, the rallying call of, of Donald Trump in this country, but other uh, right-wing populists around the world. Um, or would the world remain an open place, 
um, would we continue um, to promote the free exchange of, of goods, of labor, of services, of ideas? Would we build up those um, international institutions that were constructed in the aftermath of the Second World War? Would we continue scientific collaboration? Of course, a really important issue in the midst of a pandemic. So that was the big debate uh, that was happening. And um, all of the events of the last couple of months and indeed the last couple of days have raised the stakes on this debate and, and are accelerating the process through which this debate is unfolding. The last thing I would, I would say is that um, if you look at America's uh, global power, uh, the power of the United States on the world stage, it has not been a result uh, historically of the number of tanks or missiles or the size of our army. It has always stemmed from our liberal values, from our democratic form of government, from our ability, our capacity to internally reform, to make social adjustments to longstanding injustices. So the internal politics um, are inextricably entwined with the international uh, contexts, both historically and in the present. All right. You're listening to The Check-In, and we're talking with historians Devin Fergus and Jay Sexton about what our history can tell us about where we are today in Columbia and Missouri and America. Uh, Jay Sexton and, and Devin Fergus, you're both kind of mentioning the international role of America here Um what has this, both of these crises, but first we had the pandemic already happening that was illuminating America's relationship with other nations. Um, what has sort of been spotlighted when it comes to that? Um, and also, you know, Trump has really just announced a, a, an intention to cut ties with the World Health Organization. Um, what What is this illuminating, uh, Jay? Well, I mean, it's illuminating the decline of the United States um, as an international power. It's illuminating the rise of China. I mean, just look at, you mentioned the WHO announcement, which um, understandably, rightly, has gotten lost in the shuffle this week. But that was a momentous decision, if indeed it's going to be executed with the Trump administration. Sometimes these tweets aren't followed up on in mm -hmm. policy terms. But mm -hmm. if we are to really withdraw from the WHO, um, that limits the ability of the United States to be an actor within a major, long-standing, significant international institution um, uh, in the midst of a global pandemic. And not only does it limit our um, international presence, but it raises the profile of, of our geopolitical rival of China, which um, immediately swooped in and increased its contributions to the WHO. Even if you don't like these international institutions, as I know some Missourians don't, even if you don't like the WTO or the WHO, I think you've got to understand that constructively engaging with those institutions is the best uh, means forward. If you give up your seat at the table, you relinquish the voice of the United States as a, as a nation and the voices of the American people, who I think are more inclined to work with other nations than our uh, leaders often give them credit for. Well, wow, we could have a whole discussion about working together globally, and we're not even talking about the EU here, and that's just a big conversation that would be great to unpack one day with you, Jay Sexton. But let me let me go a little bit to our recent history and close in. Um, 
Devin Fergus, you mentioned uh, Rodney King and uh, L.A. and the 1990s. Uh, what what about um, our more recent history here in Missouri, Ferguson and Constru- Concerned Student 195 here at MU? Um, how does that recent history compare to what you see unfolding today? And Devin? Um, sure. Um, I, I mean, you're, you're absolutely absolutely right and I, I mean I hate to just seems like the that the names and faces might change but the, mm-hmm. the narratives often stay the same unfortunately that's uh I mean um that's that's uh really largely what I see and 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 here we you talk about Michael Brown and in the ways mm-hmm. in which um uh policing uh, and, and why policing during periods, especially during periods, I say this: uh, during periods of great precarity um, of, of 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 all populations, but also um, white working class and middle class populations. Um, and so, you look at the backdrop of of, of the Michael Ferguson, I can see Michael Brown sort of case, um, and what uh, what was uncovered by the Justice Department um, uh, about the, the, the policing practices of Ferguson policing trying to extract, uh, frankly, resources, uh, being pressed by, by city leaders, by the courts, to, uh, to extract uh, financial resources out of communities of color because of, 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 of low revenue receipts and concerns about pensions and things like that. Um, and so it's not a surprise that during periods of economic precarity, we often find heightened policing. This is a, really the, one of the first stories of the of the first major um, racial conflagrations or uprisings in, in really modern U.S. sort of history. It happens in Detroit during uh, really during uh, the 1940s sort of when there's a competition for employment and jobs, um, uh, which creates really the first um, we have today called sort of Human Relations Board comes out of a, a, a racial conflagration in Detroit. Um, and so when there's competition for employment, for jobs, there's precarity about one's economic situation, you often find uh, these uh, racial things sort of boiling over, frankly, um, in the ways in which um, our leaders respond to issues of precarity is critical. Uh, and, and, and so uh, during the early part of the 20th century, again, going back to Woodrow Wilson, the ways in which he used race as a wedge. Uh, he's the mm-hmm. first uh, city president to really formally begin to segregate Washington, D.C., uh, removing blacks from political positions. Uh, where, and we all know the research that uh, the, the African Americans' upper mobility is critically linked to uh, to um, public public positions, government positions mm-hmm. at the state, local, and federal level. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're removing blacks from these positions. Why? Because it plays well with a, a certain demographic. And similarly here, uh, 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 a president from a different party who, again, uses race as a wedge. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, and whether that's, um, again, th- so those are sort of common things. During periods of economic precarity, we often find uh, heightened tensions between police mm-hmm. and the general population as is competition for jobs and employment and housing. Um, and then the ways in which our leaders either ameliorate the problem or exacerbate it. Mm. Uh, and we see, and I'll be, I'll be even more specific, the ways in which the Trump administration, mm-hmm. quite frankly, um, in the aftermath of Ferguson, 
did things like basically the particularly the um the, the Justice Department tying the hands of Justice Department officials behind behind their back so they can't go through things like full uh, investigations of police departments, the ways in which the Justice Department did in Ferguson. So, for instance, uh, there was effort uh, for a full sort of consent decree in Baltimore. That's rolled back by the by the Justice Department under the Trump administration, and and so the systematic ways in which they've greenlighted. Um, some of these predatory behaviors by, by law enforcement, uh, mm-hmm. and we can talk about this in a, in, a, in a general sense, in a broader sense, and also giving a, a green light to microaggressions um, that we that uh, as that I and others face as I walk out my door when I'm not Dr. Fergus with a fancy title, yes. uh, when I don't wear particularly sort of uniform that I sort of experience and others sort of experience. Yes, and so these are. These are sort of constant concern and constant issue of precarity in the broader society and the ways in which um, the state uh, either ameliorates those problems or, or exacerbates through, well, their, through their policy behavior. Yes, and um, Devin Fergus, you're pointing out this kind of false, the politicization of an issue that seems like humans should all be able to agree on in some senses and a sort of false dichotomy that you do here between protesters and police, whereas kind of disregarding the fact that we're all complicated humans, we have police um, that are African-Americans that have families that worry about their kids um, going downtown themselves, you know, and and so um, it seems like there should be more that we can agree on on some of these issues. And and I bring this up because, um, Devin, you've written about the language we use as well, and journalists are writing the first draft of history, right? So um, we have been, I have found myself being way more tuned in this time to the framing and the words that we're using. And you've written, Devin, I believe in Rolling Stone, about how unhelpful it is to label Ferguson protests as riots. That right there is something that's just sort of unthoughtful, that's not necessarily helping, and is in fact intensifying this sort of dichotomy um, that is not necessarily even there, that a lot of the police and the protesters will actually agree, probably, on some of these issues. Um, what, What would you both observe, and let's start with you, Devin, about the language that journalists are are using what are you seeing in this first draft of history as this unfolds? It might be a little early. Um, we're still processing, but what what are your what's on your mind with that this time, Devin? Yeah, so I mean, I I think um, and, and again, I think journalists do an incredible job, and and, and sort of Jay talked about the, the role international journalists and international community sort of plays, and we see journalists from Australia and elsewhere who are being targeted and who are actually directly, deeply sort of affected by these actions. And we sort of see this actually in the civil rights movement, right, that uh, when journalists find themselves in the cross here, they become, they have much more complicated picture of of what's going on as opposed to when they're simply writing from above or writing from mm-hmm. afar. But but you're absolutely right. Language certainly matters. And, and I'll sort of say this in terms of language and the police. I, I think about some of my even very early research, look at the Black Panther Party who in one of their iterations referred to police officers as as pigs, right? Um, a very dehumanizing sort of term, frankly. Mm-hmm. And then they stopped using that language. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they get up, uh, engaged with a, 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 a French intellectual and scholar who chastises 
uh, this Black Panther Party, we think of it as a as a sort of a, a racist, racialized sort of group, but it really wasn't. It, had, it was much more cosmopolitan, engaged with European intellectuals, European scholars, and activists. And one of these European scholars, intellectuals, intellectuals chastises the Panthers for for the using the language that dehumanizes their their uh, those who who behave and act differently than they do. And this begins to open the door for the Black Panther Party, uh, which was again originally tied to the Black Panther Party for armed self defense originally designed to address issues of police brutality. And so the Panther begins to, uh, to revise their own language because of their engagement uh, with others beyond their race and color and demographic. And, and these, language, these possibilities of engagement are critical to, to, to institutions, whether institutions of, of, of media or, or scholars or or political leaders uh, beginning to engage other helps elders helps the ones to re, to rethink the language that they use and employ, frankly, and can make the, perhaps make um, the situation a bit more palatable for all of us. Well, that's an amazing reminder of our history, Devin Fergus. Thanks so much for talking about that. I wish I had time for a last question for you both, um, but we are completely out of time. So let me just say thanks so much, Jay Sexton and Devin Fergus, for joining us for this. And as I said to you, Jay Sexton, last time you were on, you just have to come back and we'll keep the conversation going. Thanks so much. Happy to. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks to both of thank you. you please, please, yeah, thank you, and please take care. That's it for today's check-in from KBIA. Thanks again to Devin Fergus and Jay Sexton for joining us. Thank you also for checking in. We're continuing these important conversations this week on The Check-In. Tomorrow we'll look at how we can address these structural problems and inequalities here locally. That's tomorrow's check-in right here, same time, same place. I'm Janet Saidi. Stay well and stay in touch.